Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Ethan Ennels. And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week we're asking, why are GPs refusing to prescribe a breakthrough heart drug that could save tens of thousands of lives? As ever, we'd like to know what you think about this, so if you have a question or a suggestion for us at Medical Minefield, tweet us at MedMinefield. Am I allowed to say tweet, Ethan? Do we say X us? No, post post us, question us. I think you still say tweet us. You're still, we're still tweeting, despite the fact yeah. that it's on X. We're tweeting on the platform formerly known as Twitter. Well, this jab that we're talking about this week, you, you've been investigating it. This it's 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 something that I wrote about. Um, I, I broke the story uh, as you years, often do, as I often do. I was the first to, to report on inclicerin, a new type of of cholesterol lowering jab. It's designed to be taken alongside other cholesterol-lowering agents um, like statins. If you can't get your cholesterol down enough or you can't take a high, high enough dose of statins, for instance, add this into the mix and it can further reduce your cholesterol by up to 50% and this will equate to, they hope, protection from heart attacks and strokes. It seems like an absolute no-brainer. Mind you, this jab only has to be given twice a year, so it's it's not endless trips to the hospital. Initially, when it was launched, it was going to be many thousands of pounds per dose, but uh, um, at the beginning of this year, the, the drug makers reduced the price to the NHS to around 45 quid a dose, I think. I mean, you would think that, that everyone who was not getting their cholesterol down enough to, to reduce their heart attack risk, uh, which is quite a considerable number of people, you know, h- half of all people with high cholesterol who are given statins don't get their cholesterol down enough for various different reasons. You would think that, that this would be rolled out widely. Um, you know, it's cheap. I think it's a big priority to the NHS to to try and stop people from having so many heart attacks. I think that's one heart attack, you know, every five minutes or something in in the UK. But no, um, in fact, something that I think is quite an unprecedented move. The Royal College of General Practitioners and the British Medical Association, so t- two of the the big medical professional bodies, have told their members they shouldn't prescribe this drug to anyone. Why on earth is that, Ethan? Well, for starters, to give a to give a number on how few people have taken this so far, the estimates suggest that around three hundred thousand patients would benefit from this drug. As yet, only twenty thousand have taken it, mm. and the BMA and the RCGP have several reasons. They claim that there isn't enough long term data to show the drug cuts heart attacks and strokes. They say there isn't enough safety data to show that there aren't any unexpected side effects. But the primary problem they have with rolling out this drug is that they aren't getting paid enough to do it. And they don't think GPs who have been asked to do it, as opposed to heart specialists, they don't think GPs have enough time to give this drug. And I mean, at the moment, people are getting this drug on the NHS, but they're having to be referred to specialist lipid clinics at hospitals and there's there's not that many hospitals that have specialist lipid clinics. There's not that many specialist lipid clinics. There are just a hundred lipidologists in this country. Mm. So it's either lipidologists who give this drug out or in some cases cardiologists but essentially going through secondary care, so that means going into a hospital, that is not a sustainable way to give this drug out. There just aren't enough specialists to hand 
in clitoran out to patients, we need GPs to do it too. Or rather, the NHS is really pushing for GPs to do it too. But so far, many of them are outright resisting the change. Well, I'm going to come back to something that that you said about, uh, you know, the, the claim about lack of lack of data on this, lack of evidence that it works, etc. But um, first of all, I wanted to ask you: you've got high cholesterol, haven't you? Which is kind of weird for someone aged 27. Yeah, over the last few years, I've done a number of stories which involved me getting my cholesterol checked. <laughs> this is health health journalist itis, isn't it? Yeah, on you the know? ground, <laughs> on the ground, getting medical you anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Right. And each time I've done a cholesterol test, I've been told my cholesterol is too high. What is it? It is apparently around six. Oh, wow. So That is quite high. It is quite high, isn't it? Yeah. So the NHS suggests that anything over five is not healthy. However, the key figure is how much LDL cholesterol you have. That's what they sometimes call bad cholesterol, yes, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it's the scary cholesterol, and you have every right to be scared of it because high LDL is a significant factor in the number of heart attacks and strokes there are. Luckily for me, I'm told that my LDL levels aren't massive. I seem to have high levels of the of the kind of not good, but not deftly types of cholesterol. My LDL level is quite low. The other the other kind is HDL that we all yes. hear about, which is the healthy healthy cholesterol. We're not allowed to call it good cholesterol anymore, though. Right. Okay. Yeah. Why? Because no cholesterol is apparently good, according to colleagues now. But it's certainly don't we need better. It? I think you need small amounts of it. You don't need as much as many people in this country have. Right. Okay. But I mean, you know, we, we produce, I mean, people always say, I mean, you know, I, I've written a lot about cholesterol in, in my time and mm. statins and got into a bit of uh, controversy about writing about cholesterol, in fact, but that's another story. But one of the big things that people say is, why would your body produce something that was bad for you? Surely it has a function. And I know that, that there is, I mean, cholesterol is, it's its something that's pumped out by, I think, the liver, isn't it? Mm. And it, it transports fat around around the body. So it's like a package of proteins, fats, and other bits and bobs that make fat transportable in the blood. So blood is mostly water. And if you want to get the fats around the body, you have to package it into these balls, which are called lipoproteins. And that's what that's what cholesterol is, and the different sizes of these balls affects how they interact with the inside of the blood vessels, etc. And we we do need to transport fat around our bodies because we need things like cholesterol in order to build the outer walls of cells and repair and uh, various other things. I think nerve functions and building nerves and brain function, etc. So I mean, you don't you don't want to have no cholesterol. Mm. Um, but there, that something has gone wrong, hasn't it, in, in the fact that we have, we have higher levels than we need. And there's a really interesting theory, which we were talking about earlier, this idea that many people have a certain thrifty gene, this idea that in a kind of our Stone Age past, when we all mm. lived in caves and food was scarce, that it helped to have higher levels of fat in your body. It helped to have a liver mm. which didn't cut out all the fat a liver which kept as much fat as possible. Fat is very energy dense and we absorb it all from food and keep it within our bodies and it can deposit it throughout our bodies in inside the organs, for instance. And I mean, this would have had a very beneficial effect, as you say, when foods were scarce because you, you, when we can survive a really long time without eating. Yeah, yeah, it's like a week, isn't it? You can't go more than a day without food 
uh, without water, water yeah. you can go more than a week without eating. I think it's way more than Is a it? week. Yeah, I think, well, you know, I can go 40 days and 40 hours, nights in the but... wilderness. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I'm thinking about pizza. But um, when, when I was talking to a, an obesity specialist... And I always ask, why is that? I mean, we we always read these these uh, figures about um, you know rising rates of obesity, and you know half, more than half of adults are now overweight, and almost half are obese. Uh, so that's so overweight that that it correlates with all kinds of illnesses. And uh, people say that we have the physiological. This this obesity expert said to me, we have the physiological capability to retain energy of a polar bear. Mm. However, we are in the environment surrounded by food. So there are other creatures like uh, oysters, for instance, that have to live in their food because they have no ability to retain nutrition inside their bodies. So they have to be in the soup of food. They have to be submerged in the, you know, in the nutrients and plankton and all that kind of thing because it just runs through them and it needs to constantly run through them. And uh, he said we're like polar bears in the environment of an oyster. Oh my God. Which is, is kind of interesting to, to look at it that way because we, we are, I mean, food is like the number one thing everyone does. You know, I open TikTok and I'm just bombarded with recipes for things. So you're saying food we were is. never meant to eat this much and we were never meant to sit this still? Well, you know, it depends how you look at evolution, isn't it? Despite the fact that we are able to live in the most extreme environments, you know, where you find human beings in in extreme cold environments. I was recently in Las Vegas, and if you go out into the desert areas, you know, there were indigenous people living there in this most incredible hostile environment, way before the pioneers um, came and and uh, got rid of them all and and uh, founded America. They were living in the middle of the desert because there was a way of life, and you 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 know, human beings can live at these these incredible extremes but we've we've continued to do that so you know we we go to space now and we can um, you know go to the bottom of the ocean so i wouldn't say that necessarily evolution was doing badly for us but we do have these vestigial functions of this this uh you know stone what well, you said stone age um, i'm not sure if that's totally correct but this ability to go without food this and it also means that for certain people who have these inherited high cholesterol levels that taking even the highest doses of statins isn't enough they mm. still need more drugs and that's why this drug is very important yeah abs- absolutely and let's uh you know before before i go off on one again <laughs> on the evolution and, and reasons go for to the bottom of the sea again. yeah well you know i mean it's it's true it's true you know you, you can look at it in different ways let's just get you know have a drug that can edit our genes like this one and, and we'll talk about exactly how it works afterwards but you know we can we can change our bodies to to adapt to our new environment so that so we don't produce these and and that that's how this jab works and you've got someone on the line to talk about uh you know how how great this drug is and and uh, others that are coming that are just like it i do indeed we are now joined by professor derek Connolly, consultant cardiologist at sandwell and west birmingham hospitals nhs trust professor Connolly, thank you so much for joining us it's a great pleasure in brief terms can you explain what inclycerin is and and what it's meant to do yeah absolutely so we know that everybody has uh, what are called LDL receptors. They are, these are little dumper trucks that grab so-called bad cholesterol from the circulation, take it through the liver, and throw it out through the biliary tree into the gut. We've known about them for many years. 
But there were some people who had an abnormality of their cholesterol who didn't seem to have an abnormality of the dumper truck. Most people do. And uh, 20 years ago, Professor Boalo and her colleagues discovered there was a protein called PCSK9. And when PCSK9 binds to the LDL receptor, the dumper truck, instead of just getting rid of the LDL, the liver gets rid of the LDL and the dumper truck. So if you have a high PCSK9, then you have a low number of dumper trucks clearing out bad cholesterol through the liver. And that seemed like an ideal candidate for intervention. So with a company called Amgen and I helped with this, we did a study called Fourier, one of the biggest trials in the world. And we showed that an antibody blocking PCSK9 works beautifully. And we've got long-term data for that. The problem with that is it's an injection every two weeks. It needs refrigerated. And the take-up because of that worldwide has been much smaller than we thought it would be. So is there another way to block PCSK9? Well, uh, in 2006, Andy Fire and Craig Mello won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of small interfering RNAs. These are using the body's own system, using a system called RISC. It's a way of specifically blocking one protein. And you give it by an injection, it gets into the liver by a system called Galnac. Uh, it's out of the circulation within a couple of days, but it sits in the liver for about a year and it specifically, using risk, stops the body translating mRNA into proteins. So you switch off one protein. And small interfering RNAs are here to stay. They're going to be everywhere in medicine. And obviously, it's going to be an advantage in many places to switch off one protein. Things like cancer, rheumatology. But in, in cholesterol, it seemed like an obvious thing to block PCSK9 because we knew that blocking PCSK9 antibodies worked. We also know now that there are individuals in the world with no PCSK9 and they seem to be normal and that seems to confer benefit in cholesterol. So Inclizaran is an injection we give. It's a tiny volume. It, it goes subcutaneously, usually in the tummy or the arms, about once every six months in the chronic phase. And on top of other lipid-lowering therapies or as a monotherapy, it lowers your LDL cholesterol by around 50%. And this week, we've had yet another set of studies, this time looking at all of the studies that we've done so far on this. And it's shown that this therapy seems to work. It doesn't reduce its effect with time. And so far, we're not seeing any safety issues. So, so can I ask, I mean, it sounds like a great thing, this medicine. Why on earth would there be any resistance to it from GPs? Why are GPs saying they won't prescribe it? I'm on the National Council of the Primary Care Cardiovascular Society, and there are lots of GPs around the UK who are giving this. And we know, for instance, that the NHS executive have written to all leaders in the NHS and saying, based on the data, we're really keen to lower cholesterols in the UK, particularly in England, and we're Inclizaran is a tool we should be using. So I, I think it's only some GPs. Now, whenever you get a new technology, anything new, there are early adopters and there are late adopters. Some people want to make sure that lots and lots and lots of people have used the therapy before they'll take it. So the question is, when we make that transfer, I think it's looking very safe. 200,000 doses given worldwide outside clinical trials. When we make that transfer so that patients get this to reduce their risks of heart attack and strokes. Now, the truth is we've got lots and lots of what are called phase three trials. That's late stage trials. There are ongoing, very big phase three outcome trials, but we're anticipating they'll be positive. We know that all the other therapies, and we had another therapy this year that had its outcome trial, all the other therapies that do 
uh, reduction in LDL work. And of course, we've got the PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies, which are ostensibly blocking the same protein, just in a different way, that do have endpoints. So um, I think the scientific community is now increasingly reassured that this therapy is here to stay. And I but think we do need that's to convince not what the, the, the Royal Colleges the Lord, say. doctors. Go ahead. The, the Royal College of General Practitioners, I mean, we spoke to them this week. They, they, they made a statement a couple of years back saying that they didn't think there was enough evidence for this drug. Sure. And they have reiterated that to us this week. They, they've said, don't prescribe it. We don't Rip. recommend it. And that's the RCGP. I mean, this is the top GP's organisation. So well, no, the, you know, what's going for a on? second, let, let's stop you here. The RCGP effectively is a union for doctors. The National Health Service, the NHS executive, nice. It's not. It's, it's, not, it's a professional body. Bodies. It's it's not a union. The the BMA is is the union end of things. Well, yeah, but they're not a scientific body in the way that NICE are or that the NHS executive are, and the European Society of Cardiology. Um, and I'm a fellow of that, uh, very much recommends this. Uh, the American guidance is very clear that this is recommended. And the FDA, the EMA, have recommended this. So these are the proper scientific bodies, the people who should decide. So you're saying the reason the right that the RCGP have said this is because they're not... They, they, they are not a scientific body, so they don't understand the science or something? Well, I'm telling you that the scientific bodies that do understand the science are very keen on this. Right. Interesting. So why do you think the RCGP and the BMA aren't? It's interesting because the Primary Care Cardiovascular Society, which is actually the representative society for cardiovascular disease in primary care in the UK, and I'm on the council of that, very much recommend this. It's not the only therapy we recommend. We recommend everything that's evidence-based, that has trial evidence, that, that we know working in clinical situations. And we do have, for instance, the Orion uh, 8 study, the Orion 9, 10, 11 study, suggesting this does lower LDL cholesterol. So, yes, I, I think some people will always wait. When microwave ovens came in, some people had them early and some people waited many, many years to have it. I think air fryers are a good example as well. Air fryers, Don't some they people blow took up. them early <laughs> and now everybody's taking them up. But, Professor, what you're saying there is that there is a huge swathe of evidence that this drug works, and yet there are very senior GPs who are telling their GPs, you know, be careful, probably you shouldn't use this, we're not going to endorse using it. That seems really yeah, I bizarre. Mean, you know, the RCGP has, has got a big influence, Yeah, you know, whether you like it or not. Sure. No, I, I get this. And, and it's interesting that they've taken this up. Um, when there are other battles to fight. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about this is there are 200,000 doses worldwide. And yes, we will eventually get to the point when we've got the massive long-term outcome studies. And you can only do massive long-term outcome studies over a long period of time. Now, they, they're deliberately doing these because I think this is here to stay. The company, for instance, has a patent for 36 years. And the truth is that there will come a point when even the Luddites say, right, this is the right thing to do. Even when you know, people who haven't got a microwave in their kitchen think, I probably should have a microwave. Did, did, so so you, you think the RCGP are Luddites? Um, I'm saying that they are not absolutely in line with the European Society of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, the FDA in America, the European Medicines Agency, NICE and the NHS Executive. Mm. Yeah, well, absolutely. Look, I have a different question. In terms of selling this to, to patients, you know, 
We all know that statins are very unpopular with some people. They've had bad press. It's quite difficult to get people to stick to to taking statins. Um, People tend to blame uh, every ache and pain on these drugs, even though the large, large clinical trials with hundreds of thousands of people that have followed them for very long periods of time have found that they don't really cause side effects. One of the things that the, this jab does and, and you know, the, the other small interfering RNA drugs do even more effectively that are coming down the line is, is really pull down LDL levels. Um, and, and you mentioned the, the AHA statement um, you know, saying that there is no level too low if you're at yeah. risk. Why would the body make something like LDL if it was bad for us? So one of the interesting things about cholesterol, and let's look at LDL cholesterol, is that when you're born, your LDL cholesterol in UK money is about 0.8. Now, in our large Fourier trial of the monoclonal antibody against PCSK9, that is the target that we we set and we got there. So the average LDL was 0.8. So it isn't unusual for babies to have an LDL cholesterol. Now, if you look at more primitive societies, if you look at wild animals, their their total cholesterol is around half what it is in the Western world. So having a high cholesterol might be common, but it isn't normal. And ostensibly, all of the modeling of the studies is that if we took the cholesterol down to where it probably should be in nature, that we wouldn't see atherosclerosis. And we know that from lots of studies. Now, going back to statins, statins, these are the most prescribed drugs in the world. There are 4.1 million people in statin trials. The statistical analyses of these patients show that that they're undoubtedly beneficial. And the other thing is they are incredibly cheap. It's £12 per year for 40 milligrams daily of etovastatin, the most prescribed drug at the moment in the world. £12 per year. So if you think that in terms of years of life lost, heart attacks and stroke are by far our biggest killer, and every week I see someone in their 20s or early 30s with a heart attack, then something that reduces the chances of a heart attack or a stroke substantially clearly is beneficial. And when it's so cheap, they are still the mainstay of therapy. So this would go back to the argument that overall cholesterol lowering reduces heart attacks and strokes. Yeah. But we know that because of statins trials, don't we? Not because of anything else. No, that's not true either. So we've got lots of evidence from other therapies. There used to be thought when we only had statins that it was something special with statins, but that's not true. We did a study with a drug called azetamide, which stops absorption of cholesterol in a trial called Improve It, and that showed benefits. How much? This year, this year we've got benpedoic acid in a study called Clear Outcomes, which shows significant benefits. And of course, now with the PCSK9 monoclonal antibody studies, we have a, a, so, a, another way of reducing mortality. Uh, clearly, but, going forward, what, there's going to be four or five other therapies, hopefully by the minute, end of this decade. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You just rushed through a load of things. I mean, okay. just to go back to um, benpedoic acid, which... I wrote about when they uh, announced the results and I was criticised for that article um, because they'd done something in the trial that many doctors say is slightly mischievous in using a big composite outcome to show significant benefit and that actually if you drilled into it, the benefit was extremely modest 
Um, I, I would dispute this. I so think really, the only significant. I think I think that that really the only significant benefit that we know from from cholesterol lowering is for, is from statins. If if we're really really scientific about no, it. No, I right? would disagree entirely with that. That is completely wrong. If you look at the benefit from the benpedoic acid trial, and if you look at uh, the benefit, you get about a fifteen percent reduction in the standard endpoint for cardiovascular trials, which we call three-point MACE, major adverse cardiovascular events. That is heart attacks, strokes, and cardiovascular death. Now, if you calculate how low you take the LDL cholesterol and how long you take it that low, then you can work out using a formula that the cholesterol treatment trial is collaborative have worked out what you would expect for any trial. And benpedoic acid we were expecting about a reduction in 15% in three-point MACE, uh -huh. and that's exactly what was found. So I would dispute that that is, the, that is the case. And in fact, if you go retrospectively to our Fourier trial, you go back to the azetamibe trials, you get exactly the reduction in LDL cholesterol from where it was to where it is and how long you keep it low gives you an absolute reduction in cardiovascular events. The old, we also have something now called the Mendelian randomization. I don't know if, if the public knows this. And this is the projection type. Yeah. So, uh, so this is yeah. this is a fantastic study where we've got nearly half a million people's genetics in a freezer halfway between Oxford and Cambridge, and you effectively have 50 years of follow-up in these patients, and you can work out what will happen if you change anything, blood pressure, diabetes, lots of things. And if you lower cholesterol, you can model this, particularly over a lifetime, you get phenomenal results. And this absolutely fits with this formula that it's about LDL cholesterol reduction and how long you keep it lower. So it isn't just statins, it's all therapies that lower LDL and in the theoretical Mendelian, Mendelian randomization studies, all of them point to lowering cholesterol is beneficial in stopping heart attacks and strokes. Mm. I mean, one of the really interesting things, all of these additional drugs, I mean, th these conversations uh, are had about patients who are at higher risk, aren't they? You know, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, in terms of Inclisaran, sure. it's, it's, it's going to be for, for higher risk patients. That, that's what it's always approved for. Um, yeah. But obviously, you know, uh, the, the big goal is to try and uh, to, to use cholesterol lowering more and more for prevention. I yeah. mean, do, do any of these other drugs have a role in that? Are we ever going to kind of chip away yeah. at the prevention side of things with these newer drugs? You know, for instance, so I, uh, we, we, I wrote about, uh, uh, I think it's called Lipidisaran um, or Lepidisaran, yeah. uh, so which, lost, which yeah. really, you know, I mean, it, it, it drops your LDL to almost nothing. Um, you know, could could we see, you know, these these gene drugs being offered for prevention in patients with lower risk, for instance? Right. So, so, so you've jumped in lots of weather. The first thing oh, to say that. is that the, the gene drugs are coming. Um, but they won't be used it, particularly in low-risk patients because that would be inappropriate. Yeah. We'll need lots and lots of evidence to use them. But if you've got familial hyperlipidemia, if your cholesterol is 20 and you're going to have a fatal heart attack in, in your early 20s or early 30s, then me lowering your cholesterol substantially is going to be advantageous. So I think the gene therapy drugs initially will be used in those populations and we'll see whether they're safe and whether they work. But... The truth is that the cardiovascular disease at the moment, in some ways, it's guesswork based on blood tests, mm. based on patient's history. We use scoring systems to try and work out what the risk of someone having a heart attack or stroke is. Another way of doing it is to image the patient. 
Now, the North American guidance have a cheap form of CT scan called a calcium score in the guidance. And that is very, very predictive of cardiovascular events. In fact, if you look at a paper recently published by my friend Matthew Budoff, you'll see that if you've got a, an Agaston score of 300, that's a calcium score of 300, and that's easy to get, then your event rate going forward is the same as someone who's already had a heart attack or stroke. Now, if you have no coronary calcium, or in a proper CT coronary angiogram, there is absolutely no coronary disease. We call that the power of zero. Your chance of having a heart attack or a stroke is around a third of the general population who haven't been screened that look like you. Mm. So in other words, the final arbiter will be, if we open the box, are there any snakes there? And if there are no snakes, and certainly if you're over 40, it's unlikely you're going to develop atherosclerosis. Whereas if you find early disease and modify it, our theory is, and it is a theory because the only way you can get 50-year data is to go for 50 years, is you get in early with your therapy, such as statins, azetamide, PCSK9 targeted therapy, and then you reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease going forward. So, so going to what you said about these, uh, you know, people with the very low uh, calcium scores, you know, that, that we can sure. we can do tests that show how furred up their arteries are, how inflamed yeah. their arteries are, and how much at risk because of that they are of a heart attack. Is that why you you could have someone who's you know a smoker, drinker, has a great you know great fun in life, um, and and you know they they would have a they would have a score of zero, and then they they wouldn't have to make any changes. Is is it a get out of jail free card? Well, the truth is, it's all about probabilities. Right. So if you have a high cholesterol and you're diabetic and you have blood pressure and you're a smoker, if you have a family history and that's really important, then. Despite the probabilities, um, that could still be normal, but you're much more likely to have coronary artery disease. Mm. So it's about probabilities. And the more risk factors you have because they multiply together, the more likely you are to have cardiovascular disease. And of course, that's what makes these scores. That's what's put in. The UK uses a score called QRISC3, and you put in all of your risk factors, including your family history, including your postcode, including your ethnicity, and then it works out what the risk over 10 years of you having a cardiovascular event is. Can you put calcium score in that? Can you can you adjust your Q risk with that? You you can. And, oh, really? and of course, yeah, and they, that's been done in North America and it makes it much a much better test. Mm. Um, so even people with relatively modest calcium scores, if all the other risk factors are higher, hmm. they're more likely to have a cardiovascular event. But of course, if you put someone in who has zero calcium, uh, despite the fact that they, they have multiple risk factors, their risk is also substantially lower than someone with those risk factors who has significant calcium. And 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 the flip, the you know, the, the converse, I should say, is is, is true as well, isn't it? That, that you get these people with no other risk factors, high calcium scores, these yeah. inflamed arteries, and that's why we see, you know, the, that that kind of classic story of the you know forty, fifty something businessman who drops down dead one day from a from a massive coronary. Yeah, the truth is, though, I have a secondary prevention clinic on a, uh, a Monday and I, I see 26 patients and I, I look after the rehabilitation unit. And whenever I see someone with a heart attack, I try and work out why it's happened. Mm. The vast majority of people have multiple risk factors. The vast majority of people I could have predicted in advance that they're about to have a heart attack or at least they're at risk of yeah. a heart attack. But they're always outliers. So, yeah, indeed. There are always like outliers. And the final arbiter is 
if you open the box and see it and see what's in it, then you know what's in the box. Interesting. Well, look, I could talk about this forever and ever, but (laughs) really appreciate you, you spending some time with us. Fantastic. Have a great weekend and a great Christmas. I got really geeky. Yeah, you love what? you love this stuff. You love heart disease. Why do I love heart disease so much? You should. You're the one with high cholesterol. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you need. You need to have the the calcium, the coronary artery calcium score. But because got, then that would put your mind at rest with, your, with your, your your health anxiety. Because I always wonder at the moment, you know, do I drink too much or do I not get enough sleep? But if I did that test and it said I was completely fine. Yeah, I've had I, one. I could drink more. Exactly. I could sleep exactly. less. You could. You could. Just just throw eat, caution to the wind. Eat more ultra-processed food. Exactly. Oh, well, no. I mean, that's just going to kill you. With yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The silent chemicals <laughs> that you don't know about, you know. Don't don't eat that sliced bread, whatever you do. Mm. Yeah, I, I had a, a coronary artery angiogram a few years back, and I had a next-to-zero calcium score. Um, it was like the the advanced. It's not just the blood test version. It's the one where you you take a, a you know you get injected with the fluid and have a have a CT scan and they they actually show the image of your heart. So I've seen my I've seen my heart arteries on a on a scan as well, which is really weird. Think and you're about, and, and you're think as, about your heart just pumping away in the middle of your body. But what you're telling us, you're as healthy as a horse. I wouldn't say that, but certainly I'm probably not. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to have a heart attack anytime soon. Mm. Which is, you know, a slight a, a bonus. It's a yeah. It's a bonus. <laughs> it's definitely a bonus. So yeah, maybe we should sort you out. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, right now in Clitoris, only for people who've had a heart attack, and I'd like to avoid having one in the first place. So no, this absolutely. won't be right for me just yet. But maybe there are other things I can do. Well, maybe we'll have to come back next week um, with another one of your health problems. It seems to be turning <laughs> into a, a recurring theme. Um, or maybe we can find one of mine. Yeah, that would be good. What could we talk about? I, you know, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go away. I'll write a list. Yes. And then let's t- become the story every week. I'm enjoying it so far, so I'm sure you'd like it too. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you can read all about Inclisaran, Inclisarin. Inclisaran. Inclisaran. Oh, we found out why they're called Irans. Well, it's actually a Siran. It's, 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 it's a Siran. It's called a Siran because it's a small interfering RNA. Siran. And for five points, what does that mean? I'm afraid that's far too complicated <laughs> to fit into this wrapping up of our podcast. Um, but it basically adjusts your DNA. That's how it works. And if you want to find out exactly what that is there'll be there'll be an explanation in this weekend's the mail on sunday you can read that in newspaper format or via the mail app and we'll be back with another topic on medical minefield next week see you then goodbye